On today's pod, we have the pleasure of meeting Mikko Alasarala, impact entrepreneur and a world expert in algorithmic influence. Welcome, Mikko. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great to see you. And in the co-host chair today, we have the notorious. So welcome. Thank you, David. Mikko, it's great um, to join us this morning. It's great to meet you. And we also have Stefano Moscone with us today. Hello, Nick, uh, and hello, Mikko. Pleasure to meet you. And of course, hello, David. Hi there. So, Mikko, let's get going. And on your social media profiles, as well as Impact Entrepreneur, you also describe yourself as a husband, a father, community builder, researcher, consultant, as well as a speaker on AIs that influence us. Wow. That is a lot of labels for us to choose from. But if it's okay with you, we'd like to start with the entrepreneur bit. And yeah, absolutely. I think I've been an entrepreneur about 21 years now. That's quite a few years to, to deal with. During that time, I founded eight startups. The eight is, is the kind of the more recent one. And out of the past seven, I exited three. And a couple of them I put back into a drawer box and, and shut down a couple of others. And, and uh, the tech stack is quite broad. I've been working with nanotechnology. I've been working with mobile games. I've been working with blockchain, with artificial intelligence, with enterprise software. Uh, like, you name it. Like, I've, I've, I've tried it all. <laughs> and to some extent, it's because I, I thought that life is an adventure where you want to experience things and learn new things. And as long as the adventure is ongoing, it's, it's still fun and life is exciting. Uh, the bad part of that is that because I didn't stick into any specific skill set uh, for uh, long enough time frames, I always had a very steep learning curve for everything I was doing. And uh, Steep learning curve means that you had to do a lot of mistakes and you try to learn from them, but it's hard to be like a super, super successful with everything while you are still in a very steep learning curve. Like you get usually successful when the learning curve gets to a point that you actually know more than others in a significant way. And I, I, start to, I try to stay humble on that in the sense that I like learning very, like I said, difficult things. And, and that's something that I inherited from my, from my parents. And I, I had this like inquiry mind and 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 that's what drove me i'm getting old enough that i think i like to stick with this algorithmic influence thing because i've done it now for like a decade and and when people are asking me to give keynotes at conferences on this topic i know that i at least know something that people want to hear and that validation in, in itself like i want to work with startups that are in that space and that's what i'm currently working on <laughs> So 21 years, uh, that's, uh, so it's quite a long time. Now, you know, you, you're looking quite youthful there. So uh, have you ever had a proper job? I had a short while at Nokia. Those are my first jo and last job that I had. And the main reason why I joined Nokia after business school, I basically uh, followed my dad's advice. I already wanted to be an entrepreneur when I was leaving the business school. And he said that, let somebody else pay for your first mistakes. And after that, you can pay them for yourself. And by joining a, like some corporation, at least uh, they can pay for your mistakes for a while. And, and I took that advice and I joined Nokia like after, just after graduating. And, and uh, I think it, he was right. <laughs> I spent there uh, two years and four months. And I learned a lot about business world. I traveled um, like doing deals with carriers across Europe and, and sitting on those meetings. And I you know, learned a lot about how business is done. 
And starting my first startup after that, I was much more credible as an entrepreneur as well. It was easier to raise funding because I was a young uh, career rocket at Nokia. And then you start a startup. Like at, the, at that time, when I started my first one, it was a deal that made it helped me to get that recognition that I needed to raise funding. So that's also a very international tale. So how important has that been? Um, to your learning experiences that you've you, you got out of here and got out and roamed around a bit and, and what kind of learnings have you been able to bring back to the entrepreneurial scene in Finland? The biggest reckoning that I had in California, if I take that as one sim- simple example, uh, I always embraced diversity and, and having this like diversity around like our kids was important to me as well so that they see the world and they friend people from all kinds of cultures and backgrounds but the california what what it really gave me was the understanding that uh, i always thought that finnish people are the kind of like level-headed people who analyze things and don't get to worked up with some stuff in the world and you know like try to be neutral and understand like the facts and do thing, things like that And uh, I saw a lot of other cultures and I was thinking, why are these people so worked up about these things? Why are they taking sides so, so hard? And what is the problem with them? And, but when I, was, when I was inside it, I realized that fin- Finnish people also have their own like, brand of this, this brainwashing and, and this, this uh, like, group thing. And by seeing it from outside made me understand that the Finnish group thing is one flavor of it. And, and it also has its flaws. It may be on average better than many in many other places, but like it, it still exists and you, know, you still have to understand it does have an effect on the culture. It has an effect on your behavior. It does have an effect on you as a person. There's um, a cultural researcher, Geert Hofstetter, that calls that human mental programming. And he talks about the software of the mind with the idea that we all have the same hardware, more or less. The culture is the programming, the software that goes into it. Mikko, that's a really rich learning story that you have there. I reckon that Nick and Stefano have some questions on observations on your learning journey. I saw you taking notes, Nick, so. Yeah, yeah, so these are my notes I've taken so far. Thanks a lot. Do you understand them, Nick? I can't read my own writing, but, uh, but luckily this is being recorded, so I can, I can listen back. You can go back and check what yeah, Mikko yeah, said. That's the, the beauty of the podcast. Yeah, so many different places to start. This brand of brainwashing that Mikko was just touching upon. What brand of brainwashing have you acquired? It's a good question. I, I, I grew up in a religious family in Finland. I was the oldest of 10 kids, and both of my parents are PhDs at the same time. So I had like a very weird combination of academic upbringing and religious upbringing. And as an adult, when I was turning myself into the agnostic that I am today, and I had to look in and out of very different things. When you have been inside a kind of like a very specific religious reference group, and then you are out of it. And, and you know, then you look at, I still have a lot of relatives who are inside that framework. So I, I live with it. And, and, and now that I'm trying to make sense of all of these things in the world, like why are people thinking this way? And then the other people are thinking that way. Um, It keeps you studying and learning about it. And, and so in, in my case, one of the big themes in my life has been trying to stay out of any specific bubble so that I can have friends from all kinds of different cultures and, and backgrounds so that I can relate with people of different life experiences than I have. And 
in that sense, I don't want to brand myself into any bubble or any definitive framework. Uh, of course, I do have uh, a lot of conditioning in my head, but uh, the awareness that comes is also to some extent being, uh, how to put this, like this, this whole willingness to stay out of the bubbles is also part of my professional identity as a, a expert in algorithmic influence. So when I look at how the like internet has an effect on me, like how the social media tries to shape my behavior, how all of these things are like trying to change me. I mean, they are not, there's no human behind it trying to change me to some specific person. It's just the algorithms that are made to, to achieve some goals for the businesses that are running them have a residual effect of changing who I am. And, you know, and I'm trying to observe that and I'm trying to keep myself neutral to it so that I can observe it and I can research it and I can understand it and I can relate the information to the population on how they work and how it affects us, mm. how it shapes the society. Mm. Well, that, that is really interesting, keeping yourself neutral and um, staying out of the bubble as you describe it. But the idea of yeah, not getting held back, leading your own thinking, remaining influential having that perspective that neutrality i think is lovely and particularly in this i suppose we we describe our world at the moment many people do as very polarized it's them against us there's two sides and you have to take a side but what i'm hearing from you miko is you work really hard to stay out of those bubbles i think the the diversity that we have across the world across the societies across the humanity makes the life interesting I, don't, I cannot believe that the life would be as exciting as it is today if all of us thought the same way. I, I can't see that as, a, as anything good. I can see that only as a dystopia that we want to get out of. And now, as much as we want to change others to think in the same way as we do, I think that having different types of ways of thinking and different society models and other things is something that gives us options and it gives us ways of life that are different from each other that are still good for us. Of course, they all give us a lot of bad options as well. Indeed. So listening to you, you describe life as being like an adventure mm -hmm. and this, the, 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 the kind of beauty, the, the different learning points from different cultures, different peoples, and again, staying out of the bubble. So how do you do that? How do you keep it adventurous how do you stay out of the bubble what is something that you do or think about every day i have created an environment on my computers and phones where the algorithmic influence is minimized for example my phone is completely silent all day at all times if somebody tries to call me i will call them back later because i'm not going to hear their call and why is that because i don't want to have any interruptions in my day and i don't want to this random occurrences to interrupt and, you know, and change anything. I don't want the notifications to basically be an interface to my brain by the apps and social networks who are trying to manipulate me for a specific type of behaviors. So that's one thing like that cleans up a lot of things. Like it, it's like the time before the fall. We tried to call people on the landline and if they didn't answer, that's fine. We could even go on their door and knock it and then see if they're at home. But the 1980s, wasn't it? The time just before the phone, the 1980s. That's, that's where we're heading back to here. That's one part, okay? I add to that one more thing. I have a setup on my browsers where I use uh, like the search engines and all of the sites uh, with the neutral settings. So I'm blocking all the influence like of the cookies and, and, the, and the personalization algorithms and everything else from everything I do on the internet. 
So I have cookie blockers, I have a JavaScript blockers, I have all these blockers on, and they have been configured in a way that web still functions. But at the same time, the web does not record anything about my behavior. And when the web doesn't record anything out of my behavior, it has to treat me as a stranger at all times. And when the web treats me as a stranger, it doesn't add to my biases. Because if, let's say, Google constantly learns what I do elsewhere in the internet, and then I do a Google search, it tries to personalize the results based on my past behavior, which kind of makes the whole worldview through Google more biased against me. I use a search engine called StartPage. And, and StartPage is basically using Google, but with anonymized model. They anonymize your, your searches to Google uh, so that there's absolutely nothing recorded out of you and there's no personalization on the results. And this keeps the world neutral. Okay, that's the technical part of it. The second part, which you said, like, how do I embrace the diversity? And how do I understand the world? And how do I keep out, uh, myself out of the bubbles? I took a challenge already 20 years ago or so where I wanted to meet people from every religion and every culture that I could possibly meet and make friends with them and you know, build trust to a level that they are willing to open their hearts and, and try to understand like uh, the deepest health core values that they had and so on. Initially, it was mostly like about talking to people from different religions and, and trying to understand their worldview. Uh, but I got more ambitious over time. So... I started, uh, I interviewed a leader of a Satanist sect. That's the ambition that I started developing initially. But uh, then I went into finding people that are very special in special situations. I, I started chasing like spies of different governments and then interviewed them and asked them like how, how, how they, how they like uh, gather intelligence. I, wow. I, how did I, you find them? It's challenging, but I managed to do that. Okay. And then I also made friends with the person who, smuggled cocaine to Bill Clinton from Central America in the 1990s uh, as a CIA-hired contractor. And I think this kind of like human connection that I built like with people from very special backgrounds enabled me to stay out of the bubbles also in many ways. What a brilliant answer. What a brilliant answer. Stefano, um, satanic sex and smuggling cocaine, Central America... I guess I'm looking at you now. What have you heard yeah, that so was, far? I was worried. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say that it wasn't me. Okay. They uh, all say that. Of these Everybody cases. says that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's the, it's the usual defense that everybody yeah. uses. It wasn't me. Um, all right. I believe you. Yeah. Thank you uh, for giving us that background. We've been talking a lot about influence. You've been talking there a lot about the influences on you and also how you, how you protect your thinking environment and keep that, you mentioned diversity and also neutrality. And then at the end, you're telling us there about how you protect yourself against the negative AI algorithms. Could we move on to think about the positive impact of algorithms? On your Twitter bio, you describe yourself as an impact entrepreneur building technologies that bring humanity together and save our planet. So how can AI help us get out of this mess that we're in on the planet. There are, there are multiple different ways of applying technology in a positive way. And one area of algorithmic influence that I've been, of course, exercising myself, but also like exploring a lot is algorithmic incentives. So if you want to uh, look at the positive way of influencing human behavior, you want to stay away from manipulation 
I found out that uh, by, by placing incentives in the right places, you can actually uh, induce a large-scale behavioral change where people are actually motivating themselves to do things that are good for them. And uh, one such a thing would be, for example, gamifying healthy behavior. When you take those incentives and you place them into, into a new place, let's say you uh, create a game-like experience for people to exercise or sleep better, you can actually still have the similar behavior shaping effects from the incentives, but they are moving towards a direction that is very beneficial and helpful for the individual. The same is true with, with saving the planet in the sense of climate change issues. People can always talk about like wanting to save the planet, and then the behavior has nothing to do with it. When it comes to climate, there's multiple different ways. One, one is gamifying the incentives for behaving in a carbon-friendly way. And, and uh, that could be ex- implemented, for example, through a cryptocurrency tokens directly connected to the, to the climate change, for example. These are ways of implementing systemic changes or like societal level changes by helping people to incentivize themselves to, to behave well. And one of the examples of such a thing that I, I have worked on is, is this uh, Cuckoo workout. It's a basically a startup that tries to gamify human behavior at workplaces into more healthy habits. Okay, that's really interesting. Uh, Stefano, what are you hearing? I heard many things, starting from a lot of self-awareness, first of all, and, and also tolerance towards other points of views and uh, ways to see the world, which is something which I guess uh, all of us could learn from quite a bit. Maybe doing a step back, because I... I'm not that familiar with the concept of algorithmic influence, and I'm not sure if our listeners are as well. So can you tell us a bit what is algorithmic influence in an easy way that uh, a three, three-year-old can understand, like me, for instance? When, when I started uh, working on this field, I called them emotionally intelligent AIs. And I, I gave even speeches under that nomicker. And so I was looking at AIs that are emotionally intelligent. and. I changed it to algorithmic influence because it was pretty obvious that these algorithms are shaping, shaping like behavior in a large scale for all of us. And algorithmic influence in this case, on one end, it's basically reverse engineering the social media algorithms. So social media algorithms uh, are, are the ones that are recommending you specific content or showing you specific content in specific sequence uh, based on the past saved behavior that, that, that they know about you. And, and this past behavior directs them to show you specific kind of content with the hopes of you spending the most time on that page or on that app that you're using. If you understand how that mechanism works, you reverse engineer it. You look at the model that makes things fly. You implement those models into your content and, and you actually get your content to spread very far. So you have influence through that. I tested that myself in 2017 and 18. I spent a year uh, of making myself an influencer on LinkedIn and other. basically during that time, I consistently had over a million views a month on my posts on LinkedIn through the whole time. Some of my posts like had 600,000 views or something like this. All of them were engineered specifically to get those numbers. <laughs> and after that, I got tired and I quit. But it was basically proving myself that just by reverse engineering the LinkedIn's algorithms, I can influence a lot of people. But if you're tired of it, we could take it for, <laughs> if, if you like. 
But can, can you give us an example of, of what exactly did you do? Not, not because we, we want to copy it, no, of course, <laughs> but uh, just, just because we, we would like to understand better and also let our listeners understand better. Just asking on behalf of a friend. Yeah. <laughs> asking for what, not for me. What, <laughs> what can we do apart from post pictures of Stefano's new haircut to get a, mil- a million LinkedIn post views? Okay, it's a combination of things. One is one is that you understand how the users uh, of the platform behave and what kind of patterns they behave in. Then you understand that how you how you get your content to be visible on specific people's uh, timelines. And, and then you know how to get those specific people who are very influential in the network to basically engage with the content uh, within specific timeframes. And, and if that happens, then the spread becomes algorithmic because you have a specific like a change of bubbles that exist inside those social networks. And if you can trigger those chain reactions, you get a lot of views. And uh, that's basically like how, how I designed all of my posts. Sometimes it's about triggering emotional response by, by aggravating people, creating controversy. Sometimes it's about appealing to their empathy in, in some ways. It's very, quite often it's an emotional appeal because uh, our reaction times to the social media feeds that we have are within a few seconds. So if you can't create the reaction in, in a human being within three seconds, you, they probably scrolled past whatever you, you posted there. So it's very key to basically have that emotional reaction happen very quickly. Also, I, I knew because I was part of a, like a bunch of industry groups of people who, who were keen on reverse engineering LinkedIn's algorithms at the time. So I knew always like what kind of type of a post was them having the most success on the platform at specific timeframes. For example, in 2017, if you added an image on your post, it dropped the visibility of the post by about 60%. So you tried to avoid using images. There was plenty of other things that had come into play. So sometimes they introduce some new feature and, and when they introduce the new feature, they usually give a, a algorithmic boost for that specific feature and visibility so that people start using it. What I did when I did this collaboration with YLE, one of the TV producers then contacted me. Can we basically record you doing a post uh, on a social media that goes viral and, and then document how it's done? I thought about it and I said to YLE, okay, I'll do it in one condition, that I can choose the topic myself and I choose it from an impact topic that I think is, is very important and dear to me so that uh, whatever happens, it still has a positive impact on the society. And, and I, I chose school bullying as the topic because uh, I was bullied in school and I was bullied in school because of my parents' religion uh, a lot of times. But it, that did have an effect on my character and on my personality for many years because it, it was such deeply rooted, like the, the bullying that I experienced. I wrote about it and I made a social media post. Uh, it was in November 2019. We had over 600,000 views on the, on the posts. And then... And, and, does a negative emotion get a stronger reaction? So irritation or injustice or fear rather than a joyful emotion. You talk about that importance of the emotional uh, connection within the first three seconds. Uh, it's not. You get as much views for a empathy post than you get for this. So let's say that okay. you say that you're survived from cancer. It will definitely be as viral as, as uh, you aggra- aggravating someone or like some deeply empathetic situation. So 
these big moments in life in general that are eliciting a lot of emotions uh, in a lot of people are always powerful. It doesn't matter if it's positive or negative. One question that comes to my mind, probably the last one that you're going to be able to answer. I work as a manager, as a leader, and then Nick and David help other leaders getting better at their, at their craft. What can we as leaders do to cope and help our companies, our people to be aware of these and cope with the whole world that it's coming. Is, is there anything that comes to your mind that we, we could do or we can help our yeah. clients do? So the really clever people and the really clever entrepreneurs do what Elon Musk does, which is that he built a global community for Tesla. And the, the whole like community building on Tesla has been absolutely mind-blowingly successful. It's been so successful that Tesla spent zero euros on paid marketing and is still one of the most known brands in the world. And it happened because they create these communities. And what these communities do is that they, Tesla applies this like what I call the algorithmic nuclear bomb. It's the most powerful algorithmic influence model that you can have. And the nuclear bomb is when you combine the selfish interest of the people into virtue signaling. And here's what I mean by that. People, we mostly behave on our selfish interest. Okay? The selfish interest in Tesla's case is to show people that I have a better car than you have. And I'm more modern and I'm more advanced than you are. Okay? That's the selfish interest that people have. But because Tesla is good for the planet at the same time, you can do that without any repercussions as being an asshole. So you can basically like... Tell all of your friends at all times that I'm running a Tesla and you can basically use that as a means of purchasing only that I'm saving the planet. And, and combining these two things has been extremely powerful for Tesla because lots of the Tesla owners are happy to share their experiences with Tesla in all social media at all times. And they use those communities to keep that behavior happening. And it's amazingly powerful as a model. So, of course... Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were a toilet paper company, you probably cannot do the same thing as Tesla does. But my point is that you can still build a lot of customer communities and are not self-serving in a way that say that this community exists because we want as a business to have a community that we want to post you some marketing materials. But if the community is like in Tesla's case, is that I will help you do virtue signaling that you are a good person and you're driving a better car than other people are doing, it's, it's working extremely well. So aligning the, the purpose of the company with the purpose of the people. Exactly. Even when those two are both entirely selfish, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they're helping each other. Yeah. You could or get out of toilet paper like Nokia did, for example. Mm-hmm. If everybody else gets out of toilet paper business and then the pandemic hits and the, and the, and the shelves are empty, it's probably a good business to have. <laughs> it is. But toilet paper was a very good business during the pandemic, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Back to I that. have to say that people were sharing pictures of them buying toilet yeah. Exactly. So in that case, oh. it did happen with toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> so as we are coming to the close here, I'd just like to ask um, maybe one more soundbite about Cuckoo you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. in the podcast. So that's the workplace well-being app. Mm-hmm. And uh, could you tell us how that is a positive use of AI? Yeah, so basically, so I joined as an interim CTO for Google for the purposes of implementing a data-driven behavior change models for, for healthy behavior. And Kuku at the time was basically break exercise video app. And, and at the time, like, people at the corporates were taking, I mean, taking these exercise breaks during their days. And these exercise breaks were helping them stay healthy through the day and stay happy. And 
I really found a lot of resonance in my thinking of losing algorithmic influence for good and the possibilities that such an approach would, uh, would have through these kind of methods. What, what we did first was that we started building a data platform, which basically enables us to, to create these algorithmic incentives as well as the algorithmic models to, to shape the, the behavior on the workplace into, into healthy habits. And one of the things that we do in the early phase to, to start pushing this behavior is a so we create this kind of like a world championship type of environment where people say, that, okay, who is the healthiest person at the office kind of situation inside the offices. And through this kind of like competitive uh, approach, you already create this positive incentives for people to, 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 to be healthy and stay healthy. Great. So that's a positive example of gamification of healthy behavior. Absolutely. Basically. Absolutely. Fabulous. Mikko, thank you so much for what you've shared with us today. Nick, what's your key takeaway from today? Mm. Nick's always asking this to his... Yeah, great question. Let's, yeah, let's lots, to Nick. lots, really. I've really enjoyed today. Um, loved Mikko's openness, very candid, honest, and I love that. And I've taken away some tips, really. Some tips about keep, keeping phones and things on silent, like blocking pop-ups and actually doing more deep work, like getting more focused work, which is one of the biggest challenges we all face today. But it sounds like Mikko's got that sorted. So I'm impressed with that and I've written it down and I'm going to do it. So that's Maybe if you can send us some pointers, how you do it in practice on your browser or mobile device yeah. that we can add to the show notes, that would be useful for everybody who's listening. Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to do that. David, what's your biggest takeaway? Uh, well, I, th I think which that is also a, a big point for me that that thinking environment and just keeping it diverse and then thinking about your own attention and your time and your energy and being able to focus. So I think it's those two things, you need diversity of inputs, but you also need narrowness to be able to, to, to focus and get mm. proper thinking time. What about you, Stefano? What was your nuclear bomb? I already mentioned that the, I was uh, very glad to hear about the tolerance and self-awareness that Mikko puts in the everyday life. I'm not so specific about seeking out other points of view and uh, interviewing spies and people who muggle cocaine and, and whatnot. Yeah. Mm. You've got the haircut for it, definitely. So, Mick, can we stop making fun of my haircut? <laughs> I've, taken, Probably uh, not. I've taken a screenshot uh, I of this conversation. I don't today. think so. Thank you. Mick, anything you want to ask us? How aware do you feel like you were about the influence of algorithms to your life in the past? That's a great question. Thank you. you. I think you said at some point in the interview that you said, I stopped calling it emotionally intelligent AI because it's so obvious the impact that algorithms are having. And I think it's so obvious that we are ignoring it. We're willfully ignoring it. I can't we, ignore it. We did interview Jarno Koponen from Wiley some time ago, and it was at this, exactly the same time when The Social Dilemma was being aired on Netflix as well. That also arose some kind of awareness about the, the fact. But you're never, I'll say, you, 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 you don't always know enough about this stuff. So... Mm. It's, it's great to have these reminders from time to time, I believe. By the way, if you get most of your news from social media feeds, you are absolutely guaranteed to get biased worldview. There's no way you can avoid that. One of the things that actually vast majority of the social media uh, posts that, that are sharing news 
people don't read the news it's, uh, itself at all. They just read the commentary of the poster and then the comments under it. The click-through rate from this shared links on social media is absolutely abysmal. There's like maybe 5 to 10% of the viewers at maximum will click through to that story. And still a lot of people will comment. That's why the news that we are really getting is our French stake or our people in our bubble stake on the, all the world events around us. And, and that's the actual influential part of it. The news itself is not very important in that specific case. So I decided to go back into the old life in that sense as well. I said, okay, I cannot take my news from the, from the social media. So I started using news aggregation services that are, that are filtered based on my own, on, on priorities and what I want to see. And, and I look at the news from there. The problem is that uh, because of the social media, a large portion of the of the news media has also turned into this kind of clickbait crap like that is out there. So they write purposefully biased uh, opinions on things and they try to manipulate their opinions from their own writings. So finding this kind of quality journalism where this kind of neutral research-like stake, like position has been taken is getting more and more rare. It's a sad thing in my opinion. It's quite sad, yeah, and you can see it even in quite big publication. Thank you very much, Mikko. It's uh, AI has, so I think this is episode 50 we're getting towards now, and uh, AI has been one of the most persistent themes that has just organically come up. Yeah, thanks. indeed, David. Uh, fabulous conversation, Mikko. Kiedoxia, thanks very much. Pleasure to meet you, pleasure to hear your thoughts, and uh, inspiring as well. Thank you. So, it's huge, good talking. Huge thanks.